Welcome to the Abundant Leap Podcast. I'm your host, Chance Welton. I'm a speaker, consultant, and thought leader here at Abundance.io. In this podcast, you'll discover your strengths, find turnkey business models, and get expert guidance for life's biggest financial moments, where we have trained and consulted over 35,000 entrepreneurs on how to start their first online business, and we've helped existing business owners start their second and third stream of income. You can learn more at Abundance.io, and of course, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at the Abundant Leap Podcast. So guys, welcome back to another Abundance episode. I have a really good friend of mine on, Ian Stanley. Man, it has just been so fun to get to know you. We always have laughs, always bust each other's balls. This is going to be a fun episode, you guys, just so you know. Um, I think you should be at least 25 years old and not give a shit about a lot of stuff to tune into this or not get offended you be, you easily. You could be 18. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> but if you're under that and you're easily, if you're of any age and easily offended, this is probably not for you. Probably not for you. Skip to the next episode of Chance interviewing somebody <laughs> that's, that's <really> offensive. <laughs> uh, we met at a conference and I always talk about going to uh, masterminds, conferences, some of the best investments I've ever made in my life because I meet people that show up that add a lot of value, whether that's th through friendship, helping the business, helping me with that next hack in life just to be a better version of myself. Met you at uh, Copy Accelerator, what, four years ago now? Maybe five years? No, it would have been... Uh, oh, no, it's just before it was the, uh, the pandemic. Yeah. I remember it that. Was the, it was February, the COVID edition. The COVID edition. Pre-COVID. Yeah. I think everybody, I think I had it then and gave it to everybody there because I hugged <laughs> everyone and I was coughing. I remember didn't that. didn't know what was really going on, but I think I was yeah. a super spreader. You were wearing your blue shirt and you were like, uh, I'm not, I'm kind of feeling under the weather, but I'm just going to like rage it through. And I was like, oh, what's up, man? Oh, I don't you know big hug. That me. Yeah. <laughs> you had your cool hat. Yeah. Yeah. I always have a cool hat. I can't, because now I need to wear my headphones because it's all like podcasting yeah. and shit. Mm -hmm. And I think wearing a cowboy hat with like an abundance thing on the front would just look kind of weird, but I'm going to try to It'd figure out. be a little too, yeah. Be a little too like. Uh, I'd have to be friends with you in spite of that. Right. <laughs> like, I'd be like, hey, this is my friend Chance. Don't judge his hat when you meet him. Right. Like, Instead of look for the guy with the cool hat, it would now switch to. Yeah, I'd be like, just forgive his hat. <laughs> I swear he's fine. <laughs> Cowboy hat with a logo is not... It's bad. It's so anti-cowboy. Yeah, it's like a Jim, the bad Jimmy Buffett fans. Yeah. Like the worst kind. <laughs> Are there good ones? I don't know, no, actually. I'm, actually, I think I would like Jimmy Buffett fans a lot. I've got a feeling we'd get along. Yeah. Margaritas. I mean, uh, you had me at margaritas. Alcohol and cool unbuttoned shirts, I'm in. I'm in, I'm down. I'm in. <laughs> so... Uh, we met then, and Ian is a master with his words. You have, I might be making this up, but a lot of bestsellers that you've written, or is it just one that was just a one? Just yeah. one. It's not a bestseller, actually. I uh, intentionally we didn't put it this on episode, Amazon or anything. It, it will be. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the main ad we ran for the book was this is not a bestseller, and it was about the fact that there's tons of bestsellers out there and people who've manipulated Amazon or New York Times. I know people who've bought 100,000 of their own books to become a bestseller. Yep. Uh, and so I was like, this isn't a bestseller. It's about making you a bestseller or the best at selling at least. And so we actually didn't have it on Amazon or anything then. So it could now become a bestseller, but it isn't. I don't want to lie. <laughs> it, we've sold, it sold tens of thousands of copies, yep. but through my own website. Because yep. then I get the email lead and I get to sell them more stuff and all that. And right there, that's why he's a master of his words and a copy genius is because taking concepts 
and using them to promote yourself in a very honest, authentic way that just has an interesting story. And that's what you've done with so many email lists and brands and even for yourself is just like really incredible. And hearing about how you grew your business mainly through email and through your social and not even heavily on ads like blew my mind. And that's what really got me obsessed with copy is like hearing your story and seeing what you had done with your business and really started going down that wormhole of understanding even in the marketing world, like you have to have experts at each one of those components to really get it there. We, we were like media buying masters and spent mm -hmm. millions and millions of dollars doing it, but weren't having crazy conversion rates and understood that like our copy sucked. Like me and Abdul were writing it. And it's like, well, we know our well, business. It can't have been that bad. If you're spending millions <laughs> and millions of dollars on it, it can't be that bad. Well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't performing the way that it should have been, you know, two, three X ROAS, but it was just, we didn't have the team to do it. And so, you know, meeting you really like kind of opened our world to, to copy really and understanding like, oh shit, we need to, we need to pay more attention to this. Well, and then talking to you guys, is like, we need to spend way more on ads, right. <laughs> which is what I had done at the companies I worked with. But then for my own stuff, it's all, we all become a victim of our strengths, right? So like whatever we're good at creates a resulting weakness. And if we don't find somebody that in our business, whether we hire them or their business partner to, to fill in those gaps, then we all just become a victim of whatever we're good at. So it's like, oh, you're really good at buying ads? Then you probably don't get as good at writing copy. Or you're really good at writing copy, so you don't worry about ads as much. Or you're really good at organic content, then you don't run ads. You're really good at ads, then you don't do organic content. And the people who have the most, you know, crazy success can do all of it. Or they have, you know, four owners. I've seen like Vshred has, you know, done really well. And they have four owners who all have basically no overlapping skills. Yep. And so that's why they do so well. But it's like the people who are good at organic should be the people spending a ton on paid. And the people doing paid, they're like, well, fuck it. I don't care. I'm, I'd rather, like, I, I, which I understand. You're like, I put in a dollar, I make three. I'd rather just do that all day but we all just become a victim of whatever we're already good at. Yeah, and that's a scary thing that we've experienced in our business as being like the one trick pony, having, being really good at media, and then we stopped working on our, on our organic, we stopped doing JVs, we stopped doing affiliates, we stopped doing all these other things, speaking on stage, that in turn are were their own like, you know, revenue source. And anybody listening in, if you are really strong at one or two, I would highly advise you to either get really well at those other ones or hire or partner with somebody that is, especially with rising ad costs, everything that's going on. Um, I'm, the way that you do your organic is fucking genius because it's all hilarious, and but it's still relevant to your <laughs> yeah. brand. And I've seen it grow like crazy. I mean, we were just talking about it earlier. Like one of the bits you did got like millions and millions of views. Like, are you seeing organic growth as far as followers and even conversions out of that? No. Or so, so that's a, it's sort of been this debate that I've had for years of like, who is Ian Stanley to the public in the sense of, I'm a comedian, but I also run this business, but I also, you know, make these parody videos. And there's this weird sort of crossover of like, this parody video is really only relevant to people who've heard of this marketer or this person. So I think over the last year or so, I finally got clear. I was like, all right, the Ian Stanley stuff, at least on like social media, that's for my comedy. That's for me to go do that. And then we made like on Instagram, even just an almost passive income as its own Instagram page where I can post any business stuff or we read, you know, we do a lot of like tweet threads about like emails I've written and stuff and repurposing the content where I'm not the one actually 
having to put it out. And I did just burp slightly if that was what you heard. <laughs> uh, just acknowledge it. I'd rather do that. <laughs> just own up to it. Yeah. Um, and so that's been, so now what we're starting to do is film reels for the almost passive income page because we haven't been doing that. And I think that's the main thing Instagram wants right now is reels. But yep. for me, it's got to be fun. And that's the problem is I've lost, like, I don't really care. To talk. I've, I've said so much about email marketing. Like, I don't, there's not that much more for me to say after 10 years of talking about this thing. Um, but so for me, it's about making it fun. I think I'm, I'm going to start doing parody characters again because that's what people like the most. And so that's actually how I grew most of the business originally. Like, for my own stuff was, you know, Lie Topaz. And very grinder Chuck and Muscle Funson and Can't uh, Cardone. Can't Cardone was our best ad on Facebook before they had shut that down. Was like, I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of, of views on uh, an ad that was me as Can't Cardone on a jet <laughs> saying, you know, you got to read this book 10 times, baby. I'll tell you right now, you got to learn how to sell. Um, and so uh, we'll start doing those again. Uh, but the. The stuff's sort of been separate. I have noticed that as I've just started actually posting my comedy clips for the first time, it's working. Yep. And rather than always just like, it was this, uh, my own internal identity dilemma of like, who do I want to be perceived as? As opposed to now being like, I don't fucking care. This is what I think's funny. And if I think it's funny, I'll post it and put it out there. As opposed to trying to like, as a copywriter, you're always shaping perceptions and like controlling narratives. And like, oh, this is how this person's supposed to feel when they get here, do this. And so doing the same thing with my own sort of life and perception online, I'm like, I don't actually care what these people think. So why am I trying to like control it? Yep. As opposed to like, I think the most views on my Instagram is one of my stupid self-defense videos. Have you seen the stupid simple yeah. self-defense where- that's Amazing. It's just like, you know, me being a fucking, it's good. that's one of my favorite things. Those videos we took, I, I almost always do one take for stuff because I just come up with it and I go, okay, that's it. To get 15 videos done, which I've still only posted two, which is ridiculous because the second one went crazy and got shared all over and I am, you know, getting my own way. But to get 15 takes, it took us 90 takes. Wow. Because we were laughing so fucking hard because <laughs> this character is just so stupid. The, right. the, the stupid, simple self-defense stuff was so dumb that like, and that's the thing for me, it's about. Nobody can ever take away, whether I show the videos to anybody, whether they get posted, whether they go viral or not, nobody can take away how hard I'm laughing when you're trying not to laugh. Yep. You'll never laugh harder than when you're trying not to laugh. And then when you're you know, punching your friend in the balls <laughs> and supposed to be serious when it's clearly right. a joke. Right. You know. So I want to just bring everybody up to speed on just like your whole growth as uh, a, a comedian, as an entrepreneur. Um, you have just dedicated yourself to the process, which has allowed to, it's like that delayed gratification where you've worked on it so hard that it's like when you're like, hey, I'm going to go out and be a comedian or hey, I want to go out and try out this new platform or this new angle. It's like you've done so many reps in that space of creating content, writing it out, doing it like you're like, oh, I'm going to start doing comedy. It just fucking went. Like, you, I remember talking about it and you posted a couple of reels and now it's like I see it every day and like you're doing it. Like you're going to these clubs, you're doing the work. Just like talk about that process of like, you know, you starting writing copy and then how your life has kind of evolved as you continue to chase that next thing in your life really and like that pursuit of happiness or fulfillment like through your craft. 
It's a good question. Um, actually, it's super relevant right now because I've been listening. I love Louis C.K. Like to me, yes. he's probably the goat as a comedian. Like Dave Chappelle's great, but I find Dave to be more interesting than funny. Uh, Louis C.K. just fucking crushes me. He does. Uh, we bought the live stream the other night and I haven't watched it yet, but. His last special, sorry, like the way that he, his ability, and this is where we're going to maybe lose some people here, his ability to do 15 minutes of pedophile jokes is unbelievable. And this actually relates to the question you asked me and about mastering a craft. So I did stand-up for the first time when I was 24. I'm 32 now. And the funny thing, they say it takes eight years is like how long it takes to like get to a point in stand-up where you're good. And the irony is for me is I kept trying to shortcut it through like, I'm going to be famous online through the internet marketing stuff, then I'll do this. Instead of just being like, just go do the fucking thing. So I did, I think I did seven sets that year in when I was 24, moved to Austin, stopped for four years, knew that this is what I wanted to do with my life, but that's our incredible ability as humans is to know exactly what we're here for. And so... I did seven sets or so when I was living in San Diego. Um, and surprising, they went well. Like, I didn't have a bad set, which is not normal. And so... What defines which, a bad set from a good set? Like... People laughing. Yeah. <laughs> like, like laughing at every joke or like crickets, mm, every third so, joke hit. Like, what do you look at metrics as a comedian of like, what is a successful yeah. set? So... I mean, it scares the shit out of me personally, like thinking about because I was in a band for a long time. I speak on stage about our business, but it's like, there's more behind me. It's not just me there trying to make people laugh. Yeah, I mean, so the number one fear, the number two fear in the world is death, which I think is fucking insane because it's inevitable. Why are you scared of a thing that is 100% absolutely going to happen to you? Truth. The number one fear is public speaking. And stand-up is like public speaking on steroids where you could give a great speech and have no laughs whatsoever. If you do stand-up and nobody laughs, you didn't do well. Even if it was interesting, whatever it is, it's, very, it's the only thing you have to do where, in order to become really good at it. You have to be willing to potentially publicly fail in real time. Because you could write something shit, right? Like, you could write something that sucks. Just don't post it. Don't send it out. Don't put it out there. Right. To get good at stand-up, even if you write something that you think is good, you, the crowd will tell you. And every crowd's different. And especially going on this tour last year, like Tuesday nights are different than Friday nights, are different than Saturdays, are different from Wednesdays. And it could be the same people, and you just put them there on a Friday night versus Tuesday or Wednesday night. They react differently because on Tuesday night, they've got shit to do the next day. Sunday night, they've got work the next day. They've got stuff on a Monday. Friday night, let's get fucked up, right? Yeah. They're going for it. <laughs> they don't give a shit about the next day. Right. Thursday night in Vegas, different it's more like a Friday night anywhere else because they're in Vegas and they don't give a shit. Right. Right. People don't go to Vegas and they're like, I've got really important stuff in the morning. Or they do. <laughs> and then they just still they party as hard as they can. Right. So, um, the, I guess a good set to me was, I, I remember my second set I did. So the first one went, went really well, which was surprising because I was, you know, terrified and you don't expect to go do well at stand up the first time. I did kind of know, I did kind of feel like it was going to work. It was like some stories that I was like, yeah, oh, this is, you know, so, but you go and you do four minutes, right? That's where you start. You get, you get three minutes. If you bring a certain amount of friends, you can get five. So I did like four and a half minutes. And then, uh, 
the seconds I, I thought I had to do new material every time because I had like friends come in and so I'm like I got to do new stuff <laughs> right. right and really comedians normally they work on the same five minutes for ages but I was like I'm just going to do new stuff each time uh, but the second wet, second set was still solid it was but it was like a six compared to like the first one was like a nine at that time compared to what you know not compared to now um, but there were a few jokes in the second one where like people didn't laugh but for the most part they were laughing but that's still, I look back to that as one of the worst ones. Um, the, but it went well throughout that time. And then I just was like, this is what I know I'm going to do. But then I stopped while I was in Austin, basically. I didn't like the scene there very much. It's changed a lot now with Rogan moving there. Um, but I just sort of ran from it. And so then I decided to take it seriously, move to LA, you know, three and a half years ago, where that was, was there for a year and a half. And then COVID hit and I didn't want to be in LA anymore during that time. Comedy was dying, you know, at least in person at that point. So right. moved here to Boise. Um, but when it comes to improving at it, I wouldn't say, I think the, the downside, even in my whole life, like most things I do, I'm good at them right away. And I don't say that to be an arrogant, but it's, that's such a curse when you're good at stuff because you don't have to work very hard. So most of my life has been me doing quite well at things but never being as good as I could be because I was easy. talented and it, be, it came easy yeah. from tennis to uh to business to writing writing was the only thing I actually worked hard at in my whole life like even tennis I played in college and I won a national championship and I hated it the whole time because I was supposed to be Wimbledon from age three um but I I never worked very hard because I there's also lots of fear that I've got to be the best without trying. These are all like these childhood patterns and things that I learned from my parents, uh, not not on purpose. Um, and it's taken lots of therapy to go and uncover <laughs> all this shit. I was gonna say, yeah, it's yeah. like that's like all of my trauma comes from there. Uh, but the um, with stand up with writing was the first thing where I, I just pursued it for for the sake of practice without attachment to outcome. And so that did translate to stand up on some level because I'd been writing, you know, quite a bit by that point. But I didn't think I was going to be a comedian. And then I did this thing where I wrote a joke every day for 90 days. So I'd seen this thing about Seinfeld and I had this X on my calendar. And then by the end, I was like, I got to do something with this. And I'd gone skydiving. I did felt you stick nothing. to it? Did you do it in every day? Days? Every day for 90 days. Wow. Yeah, I know. I, I remember I didn't miss a day because there was one day where it was like 1130 at night. I'd fallen asleep on my couch. I had woken up and there was like a pizza box nearby and I was like, fuck, I got to write my joke for the day. And I hadn't done it yet. And I'm not really a joke teller so much like a storyteller or observations of stuff. But I was like, I got 30 minutes right now to like, till it's midnight and I've technically missed this. So I remember I wrote the worst joke, probably still the worst joke I've ever written. We got to hear it. I, it's, <laughs> it's very bad. Okay. Do not take this as what my standup is. My standup is better than this. Well, we're going to ease into it. We're going to start really shitty and then we're yeah, going to get funnier is, as we go along. The, it's a horrible joke. <laughs> um, I said, what do you call a pizza that you eat on the toilet? What? Like, pooperoni. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, 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 it's horrible. But it was that was this this defining moment for me because I remember being willing to write something really bad. It's like the people with the best ideas have the most bad ideas. The people who write the best jokes also write the worst ones. It's that willingness to fail and the willingness to be bad is what allows you to be good, especially in something like comedy where you don't know. You don't always know what's going to be good. You have ideas, but sometimes the thing you think is going to hit doesn't, and then it's this weird comment over here that works, okay. or mm. it's this throwaway bit on the stage like a comment that i make randomly and then that's the one that goes the most viral 
Um, but to go back to the Louis C.K. thing and this mastering your craft, they're a stand-up's the thing I care about the most. Like I, I love what I do with my business. I love how much we help people. I love even just writing emails and stuff is still a very fun thing and teaching people how to use email to make money is fun. And that, that reward of somebody being like, I had this shit job. Now I quit and I make $13,000 a month working four hours a week. You're like, yeah, that's awesome. But ultimately, you know, stand-up's my thing that I care the most about. And making stupid videos is very fun as well. But that's also changing a lot of lives, bringing in laughter. I was talking about writing on the chairlift and just like cracking up. I needed a laugh, hopped on your reels, watched a couple. Well, that makes me so happy. Like the thought that my friends think that my shit is funny means more to me in a lot of ways than like random people liking it. Cause I'm like, I actually remember Coates who was just in here and hit me up one day when I was making like more daily videos. He's like, oh, I saw that thing. That shit was funny. And I'm like, you watch that? He's like, yeah. It's like, oh, that's cool. Like to know that my friends are actually just laughing at that is a, is a fun thing where it's also not just like, Hey, we support you. Cause, cause there are people who like will do stand up or they have this thing and you're like, Oh yeah, he does this thing on the side and it's nice to support him, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's like not like now having friends who've come out to my shows and stuff. And at the end they're like, Oh shit, like you actually do this. This is legit. Like, and that's, and I can tell they're not saying it just to be nice is, is great. But that in stand up stand up is so challenging because the feedback is very real. It's in that moment. And if you can't adapt, like that's what I see what a comics will do is they'll go on and they have this set and then people aren't laughing and then they just still do the same shit. Right. They don't react to it and get better and do like You're the like, dance. Every yeah, set, yeah. every crowd is different. Every audience is different. You can't get too attached to the material. And so like a lot of the times too, what like those Tuesday, Wednesday night shows, Thursday night, even like people need fucked up stuff. Because like, they, really they, they need to like, you gotta really you need break to them like out of, jaw them out of their reality, yeah, and just like shake them a bit and say the stuff that they don't. They're like, you can't say that. And I'm like, well, fucking, I just did, and now <laughs> we're having fun, guys, and we're on a journey, and we're here to have a good time, right? Um, but listening to Louis C.K. on these podcasts is like my favorite thing because the way he thinks about comedy, I think, is different than anybody else. And there's this awesome uh, interview with Louis C.K., Ricky Gervais, Chris Rock, and Seinfeld from like at least 10 years ago. I've watched it a few times. And Louis C.K. will say that, I remember he would do this thing where, because what you want to do is you open with, theoretically you open with your second best story or joke or whatever it is. Then you go through all your material and then you finish with your best bit. That's kind of the standard of how you want to work through your stuff. What he would do is after he would get rid of, like in I think his first 10 years he was doing the same set over and over from like 18 to 32, so 14 years, I guess. And then he made it, I think when he was around 32, he started, actually I had some saying he had kids and he was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to say stuff now. I don't care. Right. And then people go, oh, this is what they like. They like when he's saying all the crazy stuff. But he would throw, you know, you throw away your material every 18 months to 24 months. And comedians back in the day used to just, I mean, like Jay Leno apparently still does the same set from 30 years ago. Like that's the difference to, between somebody who's pushing comedy and who's like, well, now I'm going to go be a host or whatever it is. Right. But he would take his closing joke and then he would go and open with that just to fuck himself. Just to make himself have to fight against how good his opening was. That's how you know somebody's willing to be the best. Right. Is they're willing to just go and put themselves in difficult situations on stage. And I've been realizing even more lately, like I want to do well every time. So I'm not willing to push some of the stuff that I should in order to get better. 
And so like I have some bits about uh, about black people, about some stuff about trans people that aren't actually offensive bits. I actually think one of them is going to crush. I want to go to a black club and do it because I think it's going to fucking kill. Um, but white people are too uncomfortable to laugh about it. <laughs> like, they're like, oh, I don't think you can say any of this. And I'm like, I, I, and then the black people come up to me that are in the crowd after the show. I'm like, that bit was great. I love that. That was that fucking part. funny. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, well, the white people are pretty scared. <laughs> um, but I've realized, like, I kind of throw, like, I did those in like my first two shows. And then I was like, eh, it's not working as well as I'd like. So I'm just going to kind of put those on hold. What Louis C.K. does is those bits that aren't working, but he knows there's greatness in them. That's where he goes on stage and he goes, I'm just going to work and I'm going to probably fail for a little bit. So he might, he, like, he's willing to go and have 10 bad shows to get to that point where now that bit is just Gold. murder. Because the hardest stuff to talk about is the hardest to make work, but it's also the most rewarding and the funniest in the end. Like, You don't think 15 minutes of pedophile jokes are going to be very funny. And, he just and they it. weren't in the beginning. Like, that's the thing is he went up there and they weren't until he kept working and working and working. So to me, that's what it's about. Even in, in business, it's a little, in business, what I like to do is do stuff nobody's done yet. Like I like to do crazy shit in email, crazy stuff with videos that other people can't do or that they just haven't tried yet. Or like even like sending Google Docs to sales pages. Like when I started doing that and teaching that, like that shit works ridiculously well. It's just like changing up the medium. Yep. But in standup, it's like, oh, I want to just, I want to be willing to do the stuff that most people aren't. And that's what I think the best, because to me, it's not about the money. It's not about this, like to me, standup is just this pure thing that the money will follow at some point with that, probably well beyond what I might expect. But it's that the people who become the best are the ones who are willing to be the worst. Powerful. And the reason why, you know, you're, you're seeing this success and it's just like that mindset with it of I'm willing to do whatever it takes and I'm going to fail fast to become successful. Your journey through comedy is so much just like any other business and people that continue to fail at things over and over and over again and then give up. They never experience greatness. They don't understand that uninformed optimism, the value of despair and then eventually success. But since you do that loop and you see so many people, they, it's like, man, every time they show up, it's just, they just crush it. They just crush it. They just crush it. Elon Musk, anything he touches, is just like, pff, it's insane. It's because he's gone through that full circle with his business. So he understands it's going to be frustrating. I'm going to fail. It's going to cost a lot of money. I'm going to lose friends in the making. Like all this shit is going to happen. I know, but then I know what's on the other side. So when anytime you want to get into something, go study the greats, whatever you're getting into. And like it, the way that you approach your business and copy is the same way that you've approached comedy. Like, I'm going to spend the time, I'm going to do the work, I'm going to learn from the greats and figure out what they did right, what they did wrong, and then mm -hmm. just repeat that. And like, that takes so much courage, especially as a comedian. What he's doing is like, no, I'm going to throw out the best and just crash and burn for 10 to finally fine tune that. And mm -hmm. especially at that level where everyone's expecting yeah. you to be funny, then you're like, well, that's the hard, I think the, what you'll see in comedy and you'll see this in, you know, with athletes and maybe certain business owners and stuff as well is that once they're at the top, they don't work like they did for to sure. get there. And that's why I a lot of people watch college sports instead of pro. It's like college guys are still like fighting for blood to get right. to that top, top level. And then once you get there, people get comfortable. Well, and it's that comfort that kills you because 
you end up what's well, also i think some people in comedy in particular they spend like eight years to get their first set because they've done all this for so long and then they do their second one but and then they're just not as good but i think for the most part what happens especially with comedians with big podcasts is they'll have like a great first or second special and then and this is not all of them at all but some of them you'll see their next special and like i'll try to watch it and i'm like 10 minutes in, i'm like i haven't laughed once i don't understand what they're doing and what they're doing is they're just telling jokes for their fans right and to their fans who understand the inside jokes who've been there it's funny but it's like if you can't be funny to a room of people that don't know you and that don't potentially don't even like you to start like when i walk on stage i'm not likable nobody looks at me and goes i hope this you know tall reasonably good looking in shape english person does well like fuck this guy he looks like a <laughs> douchebag i look like i you know would oppress people right, right? like I, I look like i come from a long line of white people who've had good lives yeah like I, nobody's Spoon like fat. oh man i hope this guy crushes he looks like he's having a rough go so it's like i've got to come out and like rally against that for right? sure like and so especially to a crowd that doesn't know you like you that's like that's sort of the fun too it's like i'm sure you've had this speaking on stage at a business conference where the crowd sucks yes. like they're just fucking boring people like I won't say the name of the event to the person, but there's one guy who just his events, the people are just his crowd is just fucking nerdy, quiet people, and <laughs> right. I like it because it takes five minutes just to get them to like laugh a bit. Yeah, or speaking after lunch, after oh, people have gone and just pounded a bowl of pasta in the middle of the day, and you're like, "What are you doing? Yeah, why are you eating that in the middle of the day?" But they come in and they're, they're just asleep. Like, yeah, and they're just like going into hibernation. Like that slot is the worst speaking slot. But for me, there's a fun to it as well. Cause it's like, let me see how I'm going to win you over. Like I will work to the point where you are laughing at this business conference. I don't care like what state you're in. I'm going to figure this out. And so doing that, it's like a fun thing to have to come back from and to like rally against. Um, but yeah, so it's just this, I don't remember, can't remember where I started with that. Well, but. I was going to say on that, like, you know, um, laughter helps people remember Big time. Especially when you're sharing like very in-depth stuff. Is there a cadence that you like to follow? Because I know you do your comedy stuff, but you're still also going and speaking at conferences about your business and about copy to add value. Like what cadence do you try to throw in, you know, a joke to get people to remember you and be more like personable? I don't know if there's a cadence. I don't write any of my speeches that I give. I don't typically use PowerPoint either. I draw pictures, which I think you might have seen yes. some of the pictures that I've drawn. Um, <laughs> My speeches are either... They always represent some male anatomy uh, piece. I've been known <laughs> to draw a phallic shape on on the, on a stage. But somehow you learn so much from it. When Nobody forgets my penis. That's the thing. <laughs> I, once I've drawn that, people are like... People come up to me years later and like, I don't, I don't remember your name, but I remember your penis. Which is out of context, very weird. But it's uh, I draw a picture and I don't acknowledge at any point that it is a penis. Uh, it's just a Venn diagram that happens to look a lot like one. Uh, and it's, but it's very underhanded and subtle uh, when I'm talking about it. But the, so to me, the comedy part on the stage is kind of what I feel like in that moment. Like I'm not going to, I don't write any of the jokes. So like, I don't, I don't, it's not like stand up where I know my set. Like right. here's the stuff I'm doing. Um, I just have sort of bullet points and this is what I'm going to talk about. But on stage for speeches, I either start with, story about my dog and people tend to cry during that one so i either start with a very sad intense story where like nobody's speaking and people are crying and stuff and then i go into like 
laughter and stuff, which you would think wouldn't work. What I've found is that the more emotional range I can make somebody experience, the better the entire speech is across the board. Agreed. And the more access they have to one side, they have to the other side. So I've done speeches then where I've opened up with drawing a penis and doing this, you know, this presentation. And then like 45 minutes in after we've been laughing and joking around about stuff and learning about email marketing and business and money, doing one of the, like taking people through my meditations and having people cry and have like deep, intense experiences. So it's the more emotion you can make people feel, the more, like whether it's sadness or anger, the more they can feel on the other side of the spectrum. And even in selling, like I have a whole chapter on this in my book about uh, the, you want to make people feel a range of emotions, not just one or two. So if you can take them through like the eight core emotions, even if it's three or four of them, people are going to, if you can get them angry, and make them feel joy and love and fear and shame and guilt and and you know these different ranges of emotions people are more likely to buy you want, when people people buy when they're in an emotional state not when they're making logical decisions as much so you want to get people thinking and feeling i want them feeling in pictures and seeing pictures in their mind and having just emotional feelings rather than thinking in words and logically about stuff Right. Yeah. And that's what they, I mean, that's what people do. You think about all the stuff that you bought. Just go back through and look at the last 15 things that have showed up at your doorstep. Emotional buys. Mm-hmm. There's like getting in better shape, improving your meditation, um, improving your business, whatever it is. We, we, we're powered by those emotions to make change. Usually, and, and a lot of marketing uses that to put people in a place of fear or missing out. And people do use copy in a bad way to get people to buy shit that, yeah isn't in turn going to give them the value that they want. Mm-hmm. But when you do it in the right way, and you know, Nick was talking about this big time is like, you get that right irresistible offer, you get the right copy, you get the right thing, the right emotion behind it. And you can have something very successful that, that adds, you know, true impact. But you know, for those of you listening in, whether it's you're, you're writing a speech, you're doing a podcast, you're trying to sell something, you're whatever it is, you need to be focused on which emotions do you really want your audience mm-hmm. to experience and make sure that it's cohesive with the outcome, right? And I think that that's well, so powerful because on stage, like you said, like trying to control that emotion, I learned so much from watching people speak and how they control the energy in the room. And it's so powerful. And it's all these like little two millimeter shifts that they're making of how they say it, when they say it, where they're on stage, which way their body's facing. I think there's like 80 different ways or things on stage that you can be doing that are going to create either trust or distrust your tonality the way that you're like everything people are subconsciously loving you or hating you and i know that's mm-hmm. a lot more intense in comedy but when you can understand these things you see people that even you know actors people that are speaking on stage like they they are so aware of what they're doing and that's why you learn to trust them or like them or buy into what mm-hmm. they're doing you know it's whether you're doing stand up you're selling over the phone you're selling from stage you're doing a YouTube ad, it's all just a transfer of feelings. So whatever feelings you're having are most likely going to be transferred into that person. And so if you're feeling, well, the biggest thing is like just being authentic. If you're actually telling the truth, then it's easy to transfer that. Like that's the biggest thing our sales guys will hear on the phone. It's like, I don't know what it is. I just trusted Ian when I saw the ad. Yep. I just, you know, there was something about it. And they're like, well, it's because he's actually telling the truth. Yep. Um, but the, 
the thing I was going to say is that like, so I know you've worked a bunch with your sales team and I finally started, I bit the bullet and started coaching our sales team. And of course it works, yep. you know, I didn't want to do it, but I've, I've been doing it and it's actually really rewarding. And the biggest thing I'll have to consistently remind the guys of is that you're not selling a product. You're not selling a course. You're selling a, a desire or a feeling or a future identity. Like this person has a certain identity. They want a different one. That's what we're selling. The product is secondary to the thing they actually want. Yep. They'll say, well, I want to quit my job. Well, okay, so what does that mean? Okay, well, what I really want, and then you'll ask them these questions, and then these people will go, you know what I want? I want a bigger backyard so I can actually play with my kids. I want to have the money to fly my parents or my wife's parents here from the Philippines and not have to think about it. I want this. So now it's not about, we're not selling them 90 days to freedom. Like we're not selling them my course. We're selling them that bigger backyard. We're selling them like a big one. Even one of my sales guys, before he worked with us, he couldn't see his son. And he's, he's English. He's from Liverpool. And, um, he's like, he couldn't see his son's soccer matches because he went and worked at the sofa shop. Now he misses none of his matches. Like, so you're not selling that person the product. You're selling him watching every one of his kids' soccer games. 100%. Which is a completely different thing to sell. The product has to obviously work and has to be legit and should fit into that person's skill set. Like, if you hate writing, don't buy my main course. Like, it's probably not going to be fun for you. But if you do, it is the best way for you to go make money. So, but that's not what you're selling. You're not sitting there going, because they used to do this, they'd go take people through the course like the members area be like, here's all the stuff in there. And first off you go, that's a lot. It's a yeah. little bit scary. Overwhelmed. Yeah. And yeah. they're like selling the product. And I'm right. like, just fucking forget about that. The product is secondary to the emotions, the feelings and the things that they want. And that's what people miss. I mean, people just want to feel stuff in general. Like why do people want, go to concerts? Why yeah, do they, they do drugs? Why do they go to comedy? They want to feel people are tired of being numb. hundred percent. They want to feel shit. Especially more now than ever because COVID numbed everybody out. Like the amount of, you know, drugs people got on, uppers, downers, sleepers, you know, anxiety went through the freaking roof. People weren't able to connect. So they just started just binge watching so much TV, just being so disconnected. So now more than ever, people want to feel connect experience again. Like, you know, conference, uh, concerts, conferences are having like record sales of people showing up. Mm -hmm. And literally the way that we are program to operate is we're wanting to run closer to pleasure and further away from pain no matter what we're doing if we want to go make more money it's because there's so much pain where we're not being able to make it to our kids soccer game we don't have the backyard to go play in with our kids because we're in this tiny little apartment with you know no room to play no fresh air right so it's like that is what drives everybody to make a purchase or to actually make a change and if they're not willing to make a change then the pain isn't strong enough and that's literally what we've helped so many people through the process of starting an online business is really finding out what that why is. And Simon Sinek goes so deep on this, but if your why for change isn't great enough, you're never going to change. Another mm -hmm. course, another book, another podcast, another event is not going to change you. It's gotta be that moment where you make the conscious decision of I'm actively choosing to move away from this pain and move closer to the pleasure. And when you're able to help people go through that transformation, that's like the most rewarding thing on the planet. And we both have been able to help so many people transform their lives through these vehicles that allow them to get to that, to get to that place. When the irony is that once they've bought the thing and the people that are most successful are the most 
likely to be willing to run towards pain and away from pleasure, even though that's what we all want. It's the people who actively pursue pain, or at least what we perceive as pain, whether it's working out or running or, oh, I don't want to do this task in the business, but I'm willing to. Like there are the, until you get to a certain point where you can almost do none of the shit you hate. Right. But for a little bit, it's like you actually have to be, it's the number one indicator of success is delayed gratification. 100%. Right. It's, are you willing to fucking, it's that, the old marshmallow test of, hey, I'll give you one marshmallow now, or if you wait 15 minutes, we'll give you two. And I never understood, like, I'm sure if they did that test to me as a kid first, I'd be like, I don't know if I like marshmallows that much. But (laughs) if it was like a cookie I liked. Yeah. Like I couldn't even understand not waiting. Right. I don't even, under, like, to me, I'd be like, you tell me I get two of the good thing if I just wait a bit? Right. Like, yeah, you're like, fucking bring it on. Bring it on, right. Let's go, and then all these other kids are just like, I don't know, I'll just eat it now. I'll just, I'll go for it now. There's a guy doing this cool thing where he's interviewing people and saying, hey, have you started a business? And they're saying, they say no. He's like, well, I'll give you 200 quid, 200 pounds right now, um, and you can just take it. Or you can sit down with me and I'll actually end up investing in your business, but it's going to be about a six month process where I'll help consult you and take your idea to the world. And nine out of 10 times, like, thanks, bro. I'll just take this 200 quid piece. And it's like this. And then, I would it, hope they'd take that. God, I wouldn't want to have to coach them for six months. That's a horrible deal for him. <laughs> it's a great deal for them and a horrible right. deal for right. him. But that's the irony is yeah. they don't see that. They don't see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. But yeah, like you said, but then when we know that we have to do those tasks, we know that we have to, we're going to add an extra two miles to our run that week. It is the short-term pain, long-term gain. We start to understand that and we start to get, we start to chase the pain because we know it in the end equals more pleasure. Right. Right. But it's like getting through that process and then understanding how the brain works and the resistance to that. And then, like you said, once you start doing the reps, then when you apply that work ethic and that devotion and that commitment to other aspects of your life, you just, you do it. You know, it's going to take time when you're, you're, you're figuring out a new workout routine or you're getting into comedy or you're starting rock climbing or whatever it is. If you've gone through that process of finding success in one component of your life, you just have to apply those same principles to the next thing. That's why you see so many people that they're in great shape. They have a solid relationship. They're financially set up and they're also enjoyable to be around. It's because they're applying those same principles to each component of their life. And really it comes down to like that, um, you know, taking control of your time and being able to dedicate those minutes of the day to the shit that you actually want to fucking accomplish. Um, and yeah, I just admire how you've done that throughout your life of taking the copy and like, what you got to talk about like the toilet bowl ad. Cause that's fucking uh, yeah. hilarious. Well, that was, so that's, what I was, so I, you know, even for my interest in business right now, like, I've had moments where I'm like, oh, I'm less interested in this. Like, I fucking love stand-up. And you go, eh, I don't know if I want to do this. And that's natural to have those thoughts. And then I go, well, it's not true that I don't want to do this. It's that I realized recently I'm not doing this in the way that's the most fun for me. Just going to do one. <laughs> Just get it Just out gonna there. Just going to do one. You don't got to hide that. I don't know how you're going to get yeah, Nice. <laughs> there we go. For the audio listeners only, you're welcome. Um, so to me, it was, and this is more recent. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm not enjoying this as much as I normally do. Because I've always, I really like what I do. I enjoy having online businesses. I love what I've been able to do for years. I've had a very unusual life of 
spent most of my time traveling and partying and having a good time. You yeah. know, you know that's the, you know what I respect most about you, Chance. What's that? Your ability to have a good time. Thank you. There are so many fucking boring bastards in our business. Jesus I wept. I know. And it's like it's ten thirty, and you're like, "Are we going to go grab a drink?" After this, oh, I don't know. Tomorrow, I got to be productive tomorrow. I'm like, "Well, have you ever thought about?" not being a little bitch right now <laughs> and being productive tomorrow. Like right. this whole thing going on, I, I want to I say a couple of things. I'm going to just go on a quick rant. I know where you're going okay. with this and I, it's, it's, all, it's, it's encouraged, please. Okay, so <laughs> two things. One is there's this whole thing about not drinking right now and people being like, oh, it's bad. Why don't you get better at drinking? Yeah. How about that? How about instead of giving up on drinking, you get better at it? Because people, it's like going to the gym being like, well, I didn't feel good the day after the gym. That's because you're fucking weak and you've got to adapt. I go, I didn't feel good after drinking. We'll get better at drinking. Drink a little bit less maybe, but, you know, get it together, figure your shit out, and, and have, some, have some fun. That's not as much of the one I'd, as, as, as I'd like to say in this is I see all these people on social media, these business gurus who are like, yo, for your 20s, bro, don't you fucking party at all. Here's what you need to do. You take every spare minute you have, you take all your spare time, and you just put that into building a business, bro. Because when you're 30, you'll be so rich and have such a good life. You don't need to party. And then you'll party. And I go, look, first off, if you don't party in your 20s, you're going to fucking forget how to have fun. Agreed. You will forget how to have fun for the rest of your life. You're not going to magically wake up rich at 31 and go, oh, I'm going to start having fun again. No, you're going to be a boring fuck that nobody <laughs> wants to be around except because you have money. And that's the only reason people are going to spend time around you. All of your friends are going to be fake. You're going to be miserable. Your 20s is the time to go fuck shit up, make mistakes, have a good time, because it's also, I'll tell you, the only time in your life when you're going to be able to stay out till three, wake up at six, and still be and still super effective. It. Yeah. I hate to say this because I was the one at 21 going, it's never going to change. It changes a bit. I'm still pretty solid at getting up at any point and, you know, being able to go out, but it's, that is the time to do it. If you don't do it in your twenties, you're never going to do it. And you're going to look back and be like, well, cool. Now I'm rich, but I'm miserable. I know so many unhappy rich people. And I'm not saying don't work or don't do useful shit either. But this whole thing of just grind in your twenties is wrong. It's not the time to just grind. None of those people are happy. That 24 year old kid with the e-com store that's like, oh, I don't go out at all. I don't do I go, cool. I don't want to fucking be around you. <laughs> and nobody else does either. You're fucking miserable. Oh, you have a Lambo? You also have no real friends. You fucking loser. You succeeded at one little thing. You've got some zeros in your bank account, apparently. And by the way, they're all fucking lying, except maybe a few of them. Yep. All these people who say they're making money online are full of fucking shit, and they're miserable, and they're not partying. At least be full of shit and have fun. Yeah, agree. Fuck. And I, I really want to clarify partying for a lot of people because the way that people perceive it is you see the rap videos and you see these crazy movie videos of people drinking a whole bottle of Sky Vodka and fucking being an idiot, right? Yeah. It's like, you can go out and party and have an amazing time. There's a lot of amazing, healthy nootropics you can take that'll make you feel a little more euphoric and you can go out and have a freaking amazing time, right? Even just going out and drinking very high-end, biodynamic, no sulfite wine, you feel freaking great the next day. And go and have a couple of drinks and go dance. Or drink a bottle of fucking plastic vodka and don't be a little bitch. <laughs> like, get over it. Everybody's so goddamn sensitive these days. Like, learn how to be a fucking person and tolerate some shit. The people who are the most, like, afraid of everything are the least resilient people. The people who try to control every single thing. But, but I agree. Drink better alcohol in general. Fair yes. play. But this, I, I think the thing when I say partying, 
is when people say putting, they assume like cocaine and strippers. Right. I'm not a cocaine and strippers guy. I've never done cocaine. I have no desire to do cocaine. I have all the energy of a cocaine person without the cocaine. (laughs) I don't need the cocaine. (laughs) Um, My thing about cocaine people too is like, just admit it. Like we know you're on cocaine. Like we can see it. (laughs) It's literally hanging out of your nose. Yeah, like I've seen people (laughs) just with cocaine on their nose. I'm like, they're like, I'm like, how's the cocaine? Like, I'm not on coke. And you're like, I can see it. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but when I say putting, I mean like, you know, beer pong and friends and buzz and whatever's fun to you or whatever that is. That can be, you know, whatever it is. But it should be social. People now just want to stay home. Right. And they're like, well, I play video games with all my friends online. That's like, no, not the same. I'm sorry, but even if you guys are talking to each other, like you're supposed to be around people. People were designed to be around people. We grew up in tribes of 150 people. We slept 10 yards away from other people. It is not healthy to sit at home all day by your fucking self. Yep. And they've actually done uh, science experiments showing that you can have 150 people in your friends group and it's not overwhelming. You can still have a very in-depth relationship with them and your brain, your subconscious and your emotional body actually need that amount of interaction to really have a healthy, like personal or sorry, healthy, like social life is like 150 people. And it makes sense for thousands and thousands of years. A tribe would get that big and they would kind of like, you know, cut off. Like we couldn't really handle that. Too many people. So saying that, and also around the party is like, we were always designed to play. Like Mm -hmm. people forget how to play, which that's when you become boring. That's nobody wants to be around you. Like the most fun I have is being outside with people that have done the work financially, personally, physically, whatever it is, right? They've become great in some aspect of their life. And then we go play. Like, you know, I've been snowboarding multiple times. I've had you on the boat. We've been freaking drinking beers while surfing on a giant you tell, wave. You just tell the world what happened to you after I got <laughs> off that boat. <laughs> and you got on the news. Do people know? I'll just tell a very quick. Chance became an accidental celebrity within the community of uh, Donnelly McCall and Cascade, Idaho, uh, very quickly because after he had dropped me off at my cabin, he then ran into a sandbar. It was an underwater sandbar. Mm-hmm. You know, the stories they- change slightly every time. <laughs> I spent three hours one Saturday just pushing this boat. Had helicopters were supposed to come get. I mean, basically, but Chance went from unknown. To, to very everybody there knew him because he was the guy whose boat was stuck at the wrong, a lot of, you know, it was unfortunate in a handful of different ways, but it was also, you should teach a course called Accidental Celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it involves just crashing a boat yeah, into, uh, uh, into, a sand into a sandbar. Yeah. I tried to jump it. And I mean, they, they told me I had the, the biggest Ford engine in there, turbocharged. I'm like, I'm freaking jumping thing with a song gun. You know what I'm saying? Well, the cool thing was that you literally lived straight across the lake. So I could mm-hmm. get in my boat, cruise yeah. over, we could surf behind the boat, drop you guys off, come back. What what an awesome What an awesome idea. Um well actually what had happened is it's a reservoir, so it drops every day. So um they were supposed to be putting buoys up on this point forever. Yeah. They never did. Anyways, I hit it, it was underwater by about six inches and just yeah. brand new hundred thousand dollar boat just right up on the sandbar. By the time we round everybody up, it was it wasn't even the next day. I think it was a couple days later. Mm-hmm. The the reservoir drops by like a foot to two feet at the end of the summer every day. Mm-hmm. So by the time I get all my friends, all the people that really respect me, and like, oh, chances like got his nice cabin out, his nice boat, and we're all having a good time. They go out there, and it looks like I literally parked this thing 
in the middle of a sandy parking lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've got videos, man. That's just pushing. I thought I was like Leonidas leading a team of warriors. Like I was like, on three. Oh, and we're all out and then chance is just in the boat like being he's like yeah that looks like good pushing you guys are doing good push i'm here i'm i'm steering the boat and we're like it's not a fucking car dude you don't have to be in there you're just adding weight and he's like no no no. this is essential for me to be up here i was like guys i think if i turn it left it's breaking it's yeah. breaking the rudder loose but like you know that that's in the sand right <laughs> yeah we, we bro- he broke multiple engines of other people's boats uh trying to get it out yeah. But, hey, great story. The worst moments in our lives are almost always the best stories. It was a bonding experience. After that, I think we've been friends ever since. Exactly. And, like you showed up uh, and came through on a day that, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have. So I yeah. appreciate that. I'm, I, if you got a boat stuck in the middle of some water, I'm, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Yeah. That was, uh, I mean, that was wild. We got it out. Uh, <laughs> the helicopters never came. They were going to charge me, I think, 200 grand for 35 minutes of their time. To literally just hook it up and, and pop it. So we, we didn't do that. Got it out. The, the boat was restored. Um, How did you end up getting... I can't even remember now after all that. They brought in like this crazy team from Hell's Canyon that would like pull sunken river boats like out of the bottom of Hell's Canyon. Like boats that are on the bottom of a raging river. These guys can get them out. Like uh, they're wow. just like the G's of the Northwest. Like this, this is what they do all day long. So they came out. And then they started laughing, obviously, because now at this point, this is three weeks later with the lake dropping by a foot to two feet every day. Now it looks like I parked it on the top of a mountain. Right. They're just like, how, they're like I'm impressed. They're really impressed. How did that, you get it up Yeah, there? how did this happen? Yeah. That's the other thing. Oh, that's another thing I'd like to say that I respect about Chance is that you're one of the only people I've ever had to be the one. Like in any friend group, I'm typically the one where people are like, hey, and slow down. Like, you know, maybe we shouldn't go do that thing. With you, I'm the one being like, "Hey, Chance, maybe, maybe slow it down. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we think through this one a little bit." Where I was like, "Am I the reasonable one in this relationship?" Which you is are. fun to be like on the other side and be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sensible. I'm like the parent. I'm like, hey, you know, we really need to. Yeah, we need to this is good for me to, you know, to work from the other side of things for sure, for sure. Well, you know, I'm all in on everything: business, the relationship with my wife, my being a father, you know, doing crazy shit." That's just the way I'm wired is just go all in and applying that to essentially every situation that I'm in. And it's allowed me to, you know, connect with really awesome people like yourself and get boats stuck in islands, but then also get them out and be, you know, surfing on that boat uh, the next season. Right. So. <laughs> we got to surf this summer. We will. I didn't go once this summer. That's, that's terrible. It was a bummer. We got in. And I have a house right by the lake. I know. Here, and I do, you still, do you still have your slip? Did you get a slip? No, with it? I didn't get a slip with it. That was the thing that I thought was maybe there, and it, it's not. Damn, because there's such a long waiting list. And I don't want to park at the top of a hill. Like I don't want to get a boat and then have it at the top of my hill. No, it's that gnarly. I have to, like, take it down every time. I know I need to come out and see your place. Um, well, I got a new boat, and it puts out an insane wave. It's a tasty barrel. Tasty barrel. Spit barrel, a bro. Super tasty barrel. So sick. It's like you're in the ocean, dude. Nice, dude. Except with like a big sound. Except system. that you get to control it and yeah. not wait on God to make you nice waves. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. Wake surfing is the ultimate like human saying, like, hold my beer, God, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not gonna wait on you to make me the perfect wave. Like I'm gonna I'm just gonna make one myself. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's amazing. Yeah. It really is. I think we went out uh I think we surfed like fifty days last summer. Jeez. It's got the I haven't done it yet because I was afraid of I'd put my boat on a 
<laughs> on a sandbar, but it has a little watch that you can control it. So technically I could jump off the back of my boat, be surfing by myself. What? And then get back is in. Is that legal? In Valley County it is. Really? Yeah, for sure. There's some lakes, definitely not, and you can't be out at night, but at our lake we can surf at night and you can do the little, the watch thingy. I've just been a little gun shy. Yeah, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> let's let somebody more sensible right. test the watch. Right. That's wild though. That seems really dodgy. It, so what? So I don't know. I'm not, I don't. All this self-driving electric shit. I'm not really. You're not buying into it. No. I mean, you'll see. Like nobody, nobody looks at the stuff of like Tesla's just blowing up and stopping in the middle of highways and stuff. They're like, no, I trust this thing. Also. I liked Teslas before, but man, the fucking people who drive Teslas, not a fan. Jesus. Used wept. to be the Prius people. Some of those. Now it's, well, now they're in a better cut. I mean, Prius sales had to go down because of Teslas because rich people bought Priuses as a virtue signal. Yes. But they didn't actually want to. They just thought no. that it made them cool and nobody liked them anyways. Yeah. And, and they're the worst drivers. Now they buy a Tesla. Yeah. I used to, I'd never get behind a Prius. No. It's just a rule. It's a rule. But now the Tesla people, some of you are fine. Look, some of you listening to this, you go to Tesla, you're fine. Probably not, uh, <laughs> but there, man. Unless, I was you in, got, unless you paid a hundred bucks for the truck you never got from Tesla. Oh, did you do that thing? Yeah. Oh. So waiting on my cyber truck. Really? <laughs> See, I just like we've got the same Raptor. Yeah. It's I like that. I'm good. But the I was in Phoenix or I was in Scottsdale, and these dudes drove by in a Tesla, and they had their little speaker on, and they were like, whatever, saying shit like. Look to your left, like trying to be cool. And I just looked at them and I was just like, and then they, they had the window down. I was like, nobody is a fan of you. <laughs> and they were just like, what? Uh, yeah, right, bro. And I, they, they drove off. And I was just like, yeah, nobody, nobody likes you and your stuff, like doing your little megaphone out of your Tesla. Nobody likes you. They do that? Or do they have one like attached on? No, that like you can, I don't, maybe they had their own thing they had attached, but they were like using it as like a speakerphone to play out to people so they could talk through it and amplify their voices. And I'm like, if anything, people who drive Teslas need to be shut the fuck up. <laughs> they don't need a megaphone for us to hear their stupid opinions. <laughs> About life. And, and a lot of them just, they, they've got like a, it's like a $250 a month payment and they think that everybody thinks that they're these cool rich people. And yeah. No. No. Your self-driving car is going to give up on you one day. <laughs> oh, that's fucking good shit. Um, if anything, I hope we inspire people in their 20s to have more fun. I agree because I didn't really finish my full thought on, on play, but people forget how to. And like literally we are programmed to where like that like replenishes us. I remember when I first started dating now my wife, she was like, every day you have to go do something? I said, yeah, you won't like me if I don't. It's like, oh, you got to go skiing this day, and then you got to go surfing, and then you got to go play golf. And, and she's like, you do something every single day. I'm like, I have to do that mm -hmm. in order to refuel my tank because those hobbies, I'm going and doing those with other rad people that also enjoy doing that shit. And I've had so many uh, business relationships come out of that, best friends come out of that, um, opportunities come out of that. It's because you just like, you're out in your flow state. And that's what I love about extreme sports and doing crazy shit. You're in flow state, which mm -hmm. you turn off your brain, you're in your body. It's already creating like serotonin and dopamine at the same fucking time without you having to work for it. You know, so many people want to go sit in a gym for two hours and freaking pump iron. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'd rather be out freaking skiing in the back country away from all electronics and all the shit and all the distractions right. and just like 
working my ass off, but also having like a reward and actually like real fun. Um, and it just, man, it just, it keeps me going. And, and I told my wife too, I'm like, babe, then I am, I'm a, I'm a better father. I'm a better partner because I'm still being me. So many people give that up, especially when like, oh, I'm an adult now and I'm 30 and I no. mean, spend more time working and shit. Dude, growing up creeps up on you. It does. You ever still have these moments where you're like, holy shit, I'm a grown up. Like, I'll yeah. be like, I, I pay my own bills. I've been doing it for a long time too. Like I, well, I moved out when I was 17. So I didn't like kind of from the beginning. And even when, when we're working on the farm, like my dad always instilled work. Like as soon as we could really walk, we were already like kind of doing shit. And he was teaching us finances and all kinds of stuff at a young age. So it's always kind of, you know, been there, but definitely becoming a father. There's another level of responsibility sure. that you're just kind of like, whoa. Like my dad was thinking this shit and I thought, oh, he's this crazy old man that talks about weird shit about like principles and time and whatnot. Now I'm like kind of telling Which is him unusual that. for most <laughs> parents yeah, or not. Yeah, for sure. The crazy thing is how much we didn't know that our parents were drunk. <laughs> you know, like all of the parties and all of this stuff. And right. you're like, oh, my parents were just there. And it's like, no, your parents were drinking. And they were having drinking. a good time. Yeah. And you didn't know. <laughs> you had like, no idea. You had no idea for so much of the time. Yeah. And they're just like, wow, you know, I just. And they were, my mom would always say, you're the reason why I drink. And I was like, well, I'm like, water, Gatorade, and now it all makes sense. <laughs> like, well, you would make a parent that, drink. You, <laughs> you, 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 would, uh, you could make any parent drink. Or like, is oh, that it the big... parent that makes the kid? That's true. It's a much bigger debate, though. I agree. Well, yeah, just drink that big, you know, it looks like a big gobble of, like, purple Gatorade. It's like, that was wine. Mm -hmm. Not the good stuff. Yeah. It was like, came Too out of junk. a box. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, but to the place of, no, I agree. I mean, I think... Like for me, I get like, I call it an adrenaline deficit. If I've gone like seven to 10 days and I haven't like competed in something or done something fun, it like affects my soul. Agreed. I think for me, I, a lot of it's more fun in games that like, whether it's literally playing darts or shame ball or have you played shame Oh, I ball? love shame yeah. ball. Shame ball yeah. will be a worldwide thing. Uh, it'll be in the Olympics. It'll, 100% it'll be there. Actually, so we have a thing we want to do. You haven't met Paul yet, my video guy, the guy who I do the podcast with, but, uh, I want to do a, the next Olympics. It's going to be called Lane 9. And so we're going to have him, just a very average individual, do all of the events that the Olympians are doing. Because <laughs> we have no frame of reference right now. Right. We just watch and we're like, I don't know how fast that is. Right. It looks pretty quick. But, I, but you just want a normal motherfucker in Lane 9 swimming. And it's like 15 seconds after they've finished. Like, Jesus, he's still going? <laughs> is he, These did people he are really <laughs> good. I, I really just want him to do like the pommel horse. And if you had seen Paul, it just I'd just watch him just eat shit. It would be amazing. But it's a no, good I'm, point though. Like you have no idea. Like they're putting up these numbers, and you're like, "There's no frame of reference." Yeah, totally. I want to know how good they really are. Yeah, because some people sometimes you go, "Are you gonna that? Are you gonna let him bobsled? Or are you worried about him dying?" That's why we're thinking Summer Olympics because okay. the Winter Olympics <laughs> feels more dangerous. Like the the giant ski jump you see. Paul yeah. Oh like my god, though. We so I want him. The thing is, what would be so fun is you watch somebody go off and they do like a triple backflip. And then you watch him and he just tries to jump. And like, if he makes it even just over the little, the little bump, bump, we'd be like, wow, wow, good job. We're <laughs> good so job. happy for him. Uh, I love it. But no, I think like I've actually been wanting to just compete again. Like I miss competing at a high level. The hard thing is when you've played sports at that level, you don't want to go like be decent at a sport. You want right. to play like for sure the high level. So I've, I've got a couple of buddies now who are professional pickball, pickleball players. Because we all played in college together and stuff. And so I'm like, man, I, I miss the legit competitive part. Because I treat, as you've been around me for any games, 
every game as though it is an Olympic yes. medal at stake. Agreed. Like, I don't understand. I These people who are like, it's just a game. I don't get why you're so competitive. I'm like, okay, look, I understand that your parents accepted mediocrity. That's fine. <laughs> but take your you fucking... You got a blue ribbon for every activity. Take your shit somewhere else. <laughs> I don't care. They, I just, why don't you just make it fun? You know what's fun? Winning. It's it incredibly fun. This game is fun. And these people, they think that we're the bad guys because we're competitive and we're ruining it for them. Well, why don't you and the other kids who, you know, got blue ribbons for last place go and play another game <laughs> because you're stealing this fun competitive game from, from us. Yeah. So you're a little, because that one person like playing spike ball and there's one kid who's like, I don't really care. It's like, cool. Well, you're ruining it for everybody else. <laughs> right. Not even paying attention, paying attention to the rules. You just... Smacking the ball. I don't really care who wins or loses. Cool. Good for you. That's why you fucking broke. I'm I'm low key competitive. Like I'll kind of see the playing field and see like how serious are people going to take this? Are we playing with like one drink in our hand, or is is blood going to be shed at some point? Yeah, I need to know. I get that. What's what's going down? My friend and I almost got in a a legitimate fight in the woods of Montana. We were all staying out there for like six days. There's nobody around. Police are many miles (laughs) away. (laughs) And it got so heated, and thankfully there were all the other dudes there, and we had to like, you know, and we're good friends. Like he's what a great guy. What were you competing guy. against? It was we're playing spike ball. Oh, and I'm better than him by a significant <laughs> amount. And he like thinks that that's the he's he's a great dude, Carrie. If you're watching this, you know who you are. You're awesome. What I don't understand is people who are competitive who suck. Right. Like you would have thought. There's one guy I know. Oh, this is actually a different guy named Carrie who probably won't watch this. Actually, if you're if you're the other Carrie, it's weird. They're both named Carrie. One of them tries to always play me in games, and I'll beat him like an air hockey like seven times in a row. He's like, again. Okay. I'm like, why are you competitive? You're not. You're not. Even a, you're actually in not the good. Realm. Like, go back to coloring books or whatever the fuck you <laughs> try do. Try to as keep a it kid. in the lines. <laughs> like, I get it if you're competitive and you're good at stuff, which right. that I understand. If you're not good at stuff, this is the part where I lose people on the podcast. Like, that guy's a dick. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a real asshole. I've gotten better in my old age at not like I used to not know how to like even be like, oh, we're not taking this seriously? Yeah. Like, I was the guy, like, Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents, who, right. like, spikes the volleyball in the chick's face. <laughs> breaks her <laughs> breaks nose. nose. Like, now I can be like, okay, we're not, okay. No spiking chill. to no the younger spiking. people on the other team? Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, uh, we had a um, a big leadership retreat in Vancouver, and, uh, you know, people were like, oh, Chan's pretty good ping pong player, and we're all just kind of joking around, and we're just kind of playing, and you just watch people are just like, kind of, okay. And there's like three or four that were like really good. And, you know, the first, I like kind of lose the first game. And then we just like keep playing. Can't be that good then. And then, no, but he, like, Bilal was like fucking played ping pong in like college or some shit. I'm like, you didn't give me the full backstory. You just said he played every once in a while. So we're like getting into it. And like, before you know it, we're all drenched in sweat. It's down to like three of us. And it turns this entire tournament. And we're supposed to be like working on business shit. But everyone's like, no, I'm, I'm freaking taking it. Turning this whole thing where, we like brought out lights because it's dark outside and it's like a light up, like kind of like Friday night lights where they all pull the cars up at the football match, you know, mm-hmm. we're like, we're freaking, it went to like two in the morning by the end of it. Like we're just kind of like just fucking heated. And it, that was my thing is like, I saw how competitive it was going to get. And then I had to, yeah, had to take it to the end. I live for those moments. Yeah. <laughs> that thing you just described is like my dream. It was like a six hour ping pong tournament where we thought, oh, we'll just yeah. get, we'll just get one in, in between our next meeting and everything stopped. That's me. I'll do that. Like like, I'm. (laughs) It's actually best if our team is trying to do stuff if I'm not there. Yeah. Because then I'll be like, oh, let's go do this thing real quick. No. And then it's three hours later, and you know, but nobody's good enough at ping pong. 
that always upsets me. People think they're good at ping pong and they're not. And I always like I get my hopes up, so I've stopped getting my hopes up. People are like, oh, I'm good. And I'll play them and they're not. And but ping pong, I can play for hours and hours on end. But it's that just the also that impromptu. Oh, this got crazy is one of the most fun things. One thing I notice, I get so many steps in on like my aura ring and my watch on nights when we go out. And I've, I'm a very active drinker. So like when we drink, that's one of the big differences too. We're playing chamber. Yep. We're playing darts. If there's beer pong nearby, definitely. Definitely. Like we're playing games and doing stuff. Yes. And it's such a difference in how you act and how you feel. And like just, it's not just sitting and just pounding drinks. It's like, it's that competitive thing. But what's one of the most fun things about that is that what happens to the people who aren't playing and how much fun they end up having. Like spreading that joy to that yeah. group where they get to watch the ping pong tournament and be like losing their shit. That's why people watch sports. It goes back to the thing. Everybody wants to feel stuff. Agreed. We didn't talk that much business on here. Is that fine? Yeah, that's totally I don't know fine. How much we were supposed to do. No, it's all about really just talking about just abundance and and what you're excited about currently in your life and just the stages you go through to get there. Because you know, the more I've you know worked on my business, I also work on myself and like my expansion of what how long I want to allow myself to feel good. Um, Gay Hendricks talks about in his book, The Big Leap, which you recommended to him. By the way, I played golf with him a couple, uh, a couple months ago. What? He lives in Ohio. Me and Gay Hendricks are good friends now. I'm coming out. Okay. 100%. He's that's such one of the a few G. people I truly want to meet that I haven't met that's like He's, him and Michael Singer. Dude, The Big Leap is- Changed my fucking life. That was the first, that I've I've probably sold thousands of copies for him. Yep. To the amount of people that I've said, you just have to read this book. Well, right after I did not clear the sandbar with my boat, you handed me that I book. Said, I was like, I think you're upper limiting right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I was definitely upper limiting. Yeah. Um, and just to give you guys kind of a short recap on the book, is it talks about you only allow yourself to feel so good and then you self-sabotage. So like a lot of times when, in that time in my life, finances, really good, really great with my relationship. Just bought my first house, bought my first boat. Like life was just like really good. And then it, I, I was feeling so good that something bad happened. Cause I was also feeling, I'm like, man, everything's going so well. I feel like something may, something bad may happen, right? My mom always used to say that when we were growing up. She's like, oh, it's been a great weekend. Of course, somebody got in a fight. Or of course there was a car accident because people only allow well, themselves to Well, and that's where you so learned good. it from. Right, right? exactly. It's like you heard that messaging. Yep. So that became your standard for yep. what happens. And pretty much Gay Hendrix is like, why do we think that? Like, why can't it all be good all the time? And why can't you allow yourself to feel amazing for longer durations than we're used to feeling, yeah. right? Or like everything else is going well, and then we go eat shit food and freaking drink all night and don't get sleep, and the next day yeah. feel like absolute garbage. So the whole thing, you'll find one area to fuck up, and that's yep. what I see, like when I was doing more coaching of people and I did like business with the therapist, is you'd see people who, they would go and they'd call, like I'd have a friend and they'd call me and be like, oh, I think I'm gonna get back together with this chick. I'm like, you mean the psycho one that never works out that you've tried this seven times with? Like, yeah, that one. And I'm like, okay. And I'd go, how's business going right now? They're like, good. Be, How good? They're like, actually, the best it's probably ever been. I go, oh, how's your health? Dude, I've been working out a lot. I'm feeling good. This is what's happening. You're feeling good in these areas. You're not okay with, you don't have a tolerance for this much good feeling. Yep. So you're going to go to the crazy chick to try and fuck your shit up on, by, but it's all by accident. It's not conscious. Right. But I think part of the reason, and I want to talk to Gay Hendricks about this, because I think one of the big reasons why we don't believe things can keep getting better, and that's that thing I was telling you, the law I created, Stanley's Law, which there's Murphy's Law that says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Stanley's Law is anything that can go right will go right. Who is that named after, by the way, that new Some law? Some douchebag named Ian Stanley. <laughs> I don't know. You know you're a piece of shit when you make up a law and name it after yourself. Oh, for sure. 
There's only one Stanley's Law right now, though, so I mean, there's going to be more. I have lots of, like, theories and, like, in-depth thing. Not, like, conspiracy theories, like how the knees are the temperature center of the of humanity. Oh, that's a whole thing for another day. Okay. <laughs> but the, back to the, the big leap stuff is that I do believe anything that can go right will go right. And the more I adapt that belief, the more that continues to happen, even if it doesn't seem like it is in that moment. And... But one of the reasons why we don't believe we're allowed to feel good all the time and why things are going to go bad is because movies literally told us that. Yep. The structure of all movies is, okay, this stuff happens now. Let's take a ro- like a, a romantic comedy, for instance. They Here's all have the gonna same go. pattern. It's yep. all going to be the same thing. Oh, they met. Oh, they like each other. Oh, I wonder if it's going to work. Oh, it's working. It's going really well. Wow, they love each other. And the movie doesn't just end. Something, you know, there's going to be a conflict and then there's going to be a resolution. So we're taught that the arc of humanity is that things get good and then there's a conflict and they get bad and then they resolve up here at this point. And then they also never tell you what happens after that. They're not like, they like kiss at the end of the movie and they're like, ah, three months later they grew apart and they actually didn't like each other that much. (laughs) They never tell that part of the story. No, no. But it's, but that's what we've been conditioned to see is that when things are going well, they're going to go bad because that's what's interesting in the story and then it's going to go well. The movie doesn't go, oh, these things got better for this guy, and then they got better, and then they got a little better, and then the movie ended. Right. There's it bores people. Yep, hundred percent. And to that to that point, um, you know, yes, we're, we're used to that pattern, that up and down, and that tension, and we do get bored, especially in life. I'll watch this happen at, like, you know, get a bunch of friends together. Um, you know, we go on this big long trip, you know, four or five days, first three days, four days, everything's going amazing. And then all of a sudden someone starts bringing up some old drama bullshit and starts sharing it with the group. And then it kind of spreads and they're like, oh my God. And then it creates this whole thing. You're like, why are we even talking about this? Something that happened eight years ago or whatever it is. But it's because the subconscious is like, either I'm bored or I'm used to having some sort of tension somewhere in my life. So I need to bring it up in order for me to feel comfortable. And you're like, you're asking trouble or bad vibes or whatever in your life to make you feel comfortable. That's, That's how, where people are comfortable. Yeah, 100%, which is so fucked when you really think about it, but we've all been programmed to think that way. So Tom Billiard talks about breaking out of the matrix and I saw him speak uh, a couple weeks ago and in the backstage in his inner circle, he was talking about breaking out of the matrix and he was like, we literally do things to prove that we want to be better and we want people to choose our idea just because it's our idea, even though it's going to hurt the overall health of the business and actual, like, the bottom line. But, like, subconsciously, we're tearing ourselves down because we're so attached to ego to wanting ourselves to be right, even though it's actually hurting us. So, like, there's one component of living in the matrix, and then the other one really is that bigger leap where we actually ask drama and pain and sickness and all this crap to come into our lives to keep us in this place of comfort. Well, if you break out of all that fucking programming, you're able to have abundance in all aspects of your life and that's okay. And then people feel guilty when things are too good. Right. You know, like, oh, I just, I feel so guilty because it's so good. Well, why? You're adding so much value to the world and your bank account and your life is a direct reflection of how much value you're adding to the planet, how much impact you're having. Right. Period. The problems you're solving. That's it. And so especially when people have exponential growth, like I was experiencing at that time, I hit that upper limit, mm-hmm. self-sabotage, and then you go back through this fucking cycle. So it was really cool to have that in depth. Because I asked him, like, where did the big leap concept come from? 
And he had literally been thinking about it for like 20 years and was like trying to put it into words, but had watched it happen so many times in his life mm-hmm. and in other people's life. And he's coached a lot of the top people out yeah. there on the planet that are doing big, big things. Well, that's why some of these people, like there's so many fucking coaches out there today that have th- done a fucking thing. No. And you're like, look, Jordan Peterson was a therapist for, you know, 25 years before anybody knew any of his thoughts had value. Yep. Gay Hendricks was working with people individually for like 20 years before they go and write the book. These people are like, I did well for a month. Now I'm a guru and now I'm going to go teach this shit. And they forget that the value was actually in all the time when they weren't known, when they weren't writing books, when they weren't sharing their opinions publicly, when they were learning by working with real people. That's when they became great. And it's funny that, you know, I've talked about self-sabotage and upper limits and all this so much because it like became my specialty within the stuff we did with Brent, the therapist business I had. Um, and it's funny cause I read it. So I've read some screenwriting books and one of the ones I read, like basically the biggest takeaway was that there's got to be conflict in anything that you're writing. There has to be this sense that things are not, you know, there's always this constant conflict. So even if you look at breaking bad, you have these two guys, who are working towards the same goal. And they're always arguing to a point where it's annoying at times. You're like, can you fuckers just agree? Like you want to make good meth, make good meth together. But then this guy's like, well, I want to make the meth this way. Well, I want to do it this way. And and it's this constant sense of tension. And for a lot of people, they say it's the best show ever. Uh, Not me personally. I don't think it's the best one ever, but very good. But it's this, there's a constant conflict going on underneath. So he's like, even if your your characters agree on where they're going, there's conflict, or they're all arguing about everything all the time. That's what really good shows and movies are. They have a constant sense of conflict. So as was funny as the podcast I started with Paul, we call it constant conflict because it's Love it. us just arguing. Yeah, yeah. But that's what's fun. You want to watch. Also, what do dudes do when you sit around? You come up with ridiculous situations and you argue yeah, about, about shit it. that doesn't matter. Right. Who's the best ninja turtle? 30 minutes later, we've gone down a, a, a hole of which one's the best. Is it Parks and Rec or is it The Office? Well, it's clearly The Office. Yeah. But he wants to argue for Parks and Rec, and he's wrong. And, like, but that's this thing is we want conflict, but yeah. it's cool to choose your conflict. Like, I choose, the only stress I allow in my life is when I watch Liverpool or England play soccer. I don't, really, I don't get stressed. I don't really understand the stress. I don't understand why people are so worried about shit. Like, it's happening. Yeah. And if you accept what's happening right now, then you're fine. I don't accept what's happening in soccer. Right. And so I, I choose <laughs> right. this stress, but that's the fun of it. The right. reason I love it so much is because it's when I feel so much tension and stress. And it's like, but you should be choosing that in your life. Like, for sure. Choose to argue about the Ninja Turtles or which is the best cookie dipped in milk. Like, <laughs> that's stuff that's worth arguing about. But with bigger shit, which is chocolate chip cookies? Well, which brand? Chips Ahoy. What? Just the basic, which one? Blue package? Blue package. The dipped OG. In milk? The OG. Dipped in milk? Yeah. Okay, do you get the fingers wet? I can't remember, actually. It's been a long time since I've dipped a cookie in milk. Yeah. I, I was probably more of a service one because I, I was always weird about, like, texture on my fingers and stuff, so, so I don't you, think I dipped it. But what did you do with the dry pot at the end of the cookie that was I turned it this way and then dipped it that so, way. So, but you left some crunch at the bottom because yes, you were unwilling to get the fingers <laughs> yes. wet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That shows a type. That's surprising for you. I'd think you'd be a fingers wet kind of guy with the lifestyle that you live. <laughs> that was back when I, you know, wasn't wasn't going all in. Also, you know? a very boring cookie for somebody like you. I I wouldn't I expect you to pick the blue. If anything, maybe chunky. 
You know, the brown package? It was, too, the it, was, it was too much chocolate. The ratio was off. Oh, okay. So it was the improper ratio. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about a, a dry cookie? If you didn't have any milk nearby, what are you choosing? Dry cookie. I think it was, I think it was Oreo. What? That's, you're so fucking backwards, dude. You're, you're wrong. That's what, see, this is what, this is the beauty of life. You are wrong. A hundred percent in this moment. If you're going to compare a dry, eating a dry Oreo is like swallowing a piece of shit. <laughs> it, or if you eat an Oreo dry, first off, you've probably just gotten back from a murder you've committed. <laughs> and the only thing you think of with a dry Oreo is I wish this was wet. And by, I mean milk, not you, water, but like nobody eats Oreos dry. They were just, what was the easiest ones to take yeah, on a Chips Ahoy trip? you could eat dry, but an Oreo? You tricked me Double into those answers. Double stuff or single stuff? <laughs> Double, Double single. stuff for sure. Okay. Double stuff. Double stuff dry makes a little more sense. Yeah. But single stuffed. And I always would grab the ones at the back of the rack so they were a lot fresher. So like the, the center was. Double stuffed dry or single stuffed wet? Single stuffed wet for sure. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Glad that we agreed on something there. <laughs> we we found our resolution. We did. We we, we found that our was resolution. a movie plot. So it we was. started out yeah. and then we and then we disagreed. People were really interested there. We're gonna see the viewer That's rate be, go up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is where you cut these clips and you're gonna throw it out on TikTok. That'll be the the most viral part. People are like, what is this? A business podcast? I don't give a shit about any of that. I just want to hear the cookie debate yeah. again. <laughs> uh, we gotta have you on constant conflict and we'll just argue about shit. For oh, a while. I can't wait. Yeah, I can't wait. You know, I wanted to do a, a podcast where. Nobody knew my name, so we could talk about whatever the fuck we wanted to. We're just like anonymous. Yeah. Uh, I've thought about how to do yeah. that, but then how would you do it? I don't know. You know? Because then you could get like robot voices and a different thing, and then it would be just this anonymous thing. I, you could just wear a helmet like those DJs, I suppose. Yeah. And We'd have be your like. Voice altered. Exactly. You know, I'd could be, you imagine I'd be Marshmallow, like and you could be freaking Daft Punk, and we open with house music, and then we just talk. Honestly, about, about everything. everything. <laughs> Isn't that crazy that we've gotten so far in society right now that we're afraid to just say what we'd say in private? Well, to some degree. Depends on what show we're on. Yeah. On this show, we're, you know, talking about business. Business. And Wait, cooking. I want to know how you met Gay Hendrix. So, uh, again, just like putting it out there. By the way, that book came out in like 1995, mm -hmm. and now it's trending. That's because of how many people I've recommended. Yeah, it exactly. <laughs> it's, it's been so many. I used to tell people, and, and I actually, The Surrender Experiment and The Big Leap are my two favorites. Uh, Surrender Experiment, I've read like 17 times. The Big Leap, I've read like four. Um, and I love it. The But I would tell people, go buy The Big Leap. I was like, because I know entrepreneurs and I know when I'm telling them this, I go, you have a list of books right now that you're supposed to read and you won't read them all, but you're going to put this at the bottom of that list and you're not going to maybe get to it. And what will happen is about halfway through the big leap, you're going to stop wanting to read it because the upper limit problem is going to start kicking in. Keep pushing. Yep. I did that. I stopped for a little and I'm like, wait, no, no, this is the same pattern showing up for me. And so, and but I'd say tell people, put it at the top of your list and just read it first because otherwise you're going to find a way not to read it now. It's that valuable. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Um, so anyways, I had put, kind of put it out there. I was like, you know, this book has changed my life. We've recommended it to all of the entrepreneurs that have come through abundance. Like that is at the top of the reading list. Like you have to read this to, under, to truly understand yourself in business to allow you to have success because you're going to self-sabotage yourself mm -hmm. through going against everything we teach. Your brain will shut off to it because it does not want you to experience that next big leap. Right. So uh, I was at a conference and, um, you know, I had just moved to Ohio. I just bought a house. I was talking to... Uh, 
this gal at one of the tables and she was like, oh yeah, I love Ojai. There's a lot of amazing people up there. I was like, oh, who do you know? And she's like, Gay Hendricks. And I was like, as in The Big Leap. And she's like, absolutely. I'm like, can you please intro him to me? I would love to just go play. She's like, oh, he's an avid golfer, loves golf like outfits, attire. He wears all this like funky golf shit. And I do too. Just wear like, swear the most ridiculous shit when we play golf. Mm-hmm. And so I knew we were going to connect on that. And just, again, going from knowing how to play and have experience, I was able to have that connection with uh, a very important person in my life. And we were able to go and play golf talk about all the shit that and all the questions I always wanted to ask him. Who'd you go? Like, did you text him? How did this old? Yeah, she put us in a group text. And then uh, I was just like, yeah. And I, and I didn't want to come across as a fan because he mentors a lot of people and he's no longer doing like personal one-on-one stuff. So I didn't want him to think like that's like I wanted something from him. I was just like, hey, let's go play golf because we're both members at the same club. Um, and so uh, we just like connected. The first nine, we talked about golf and all just the things we love. Yeah. Just hopped on the golf cart and we're like, and then eventually I was just like, you know, massive event. I was like, your book, The Big Leaf, like really changed my life. He's like, my book didn't change your life. You changed. You changed your life, but I gave you a tool to do it, but it never would have happened for you unless you would have actually done yeah. the work. Um, it's funny. So, I hit, he mentors like a, like a handful of people a year, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it's like very, that. very limited. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a funny story that I'll probably tell him at some point. I've thought about just messaging him because I know this woman who works with him and she was in like a little eight person thing I was in before I spoke at this night. It was uh, DG's I Am Party. And uh, he does like a little mini mastermind beforehand for the speaker. And so it was like about YouTube stuff. And she was there. And other people are giving me this advice of shit. And I was like, yeah, this isn't right. Like, I can, not like I'm better than them, but like it wasn't hitting for me. Yeah. And then she started talking about something. And then like it got into, and then I was like started tearing up and stuff. And I was like, oh, she's, she's on the path of what I'm talking about. And it turns out she works with uh, Gay Hendricks personally. And so early, late last year, I'd hit her up and was like, hey, is there, you know, how can I get into this and talk to him? So she's like, well, if you send me some of this stuff or send this, then I'll show him he needs to make sure you're doing big stuff or whatever in this. And I go, okay, cool. And then I didn't follow through. And I'm like, what a beautiful story now to be like, you want to know how good I am at upper limit shit still? <laughs> right. I didn't even fucking follow through on this opportunity <laughs> to work with this guy who I know I should work with. Right. Like, cause I had an opportunity to, and I'm, hopefully it's still there. I'm sure it is. But like, that's, it's still, it always, the, the self-sabotage never goes away. It just changes shapes yes. and it's, and it becomes more insidious and actually more clever. Like for me, when I had, uh, I, I don't even know if you even know this yet, but I killed my Crohn's disease and now can eat any food and and do whatever. Amazing, because I knew yeah. you were on the carnivore diet for a long time. Yeah. Taking a lot of supplements. I mean, you were really working on that big time. Yeah, and so, but it was just with my mind, essentially. It's a, a longer, crazy story for another time. Also a short story in the sense. But um, now I can eat whatever and stuff. But then what I would do is, like, when I got better and better at dealing with my self-sabotage, it would become really subtle. Like, the night before I had a speech or something, I'd go and, you know, I'd eat something that, you know, maybe a gluten-free pizza. So this that could have touched something that could have made me sick. Like I would push little boundaries, right? Like you do, oh, I'll just stay up later tonight or I'll go do something or whatever. It becomes more and more clever. Whereas when you're really bad at it, it'll be like, oh, I'm in this relationship. I'll just go cheat with this person. Like big shit, like, right. you know, big, big issues. Or I'll do whatever it is for you. I'm going to go lose a bunch of money on purpose or I'm going to run my boat into a sandbar, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it might be for that individual. Yeah. Um. But so it just changes shape and size and you become better at, becoming aware of it and then you you stop yourself before you do the thing you make the big mistake 
but it's still there in different ways. It just becomes more really clever. Like it starts to outsmart because it's like, well, this guy's kind of figuring me out. I got to be really smart about how I try and sabotage this guy now. Yep. And so, but you, so it's never, you're never done. You're never done working on it. You never stop. It's just like, if there's any point you think you're done, like you have just, you're further back than you think because you are deluding yourself. Because that's the thing too, is like we get smarter, we get better, we get more disciplined, but then so does our mm-hmm. self-sabotaging self as well as also getting better. Yeah. And it's it, you're absolutely right. It's those little subtle things of like, I know if I go to bed at nine or 9.30, I get to bed before my second wind shows up and then I can store that and have more energy the next day. Mm-hmm. Then I'll be like, oh, I've worked really hard this week. Like I'm just going to watch, you know, stay up till 10 and finish watching the documentary or whatever. Then I hit my second win. Now it's midnight. And then the next day I'm yeah. fucking drained. Right. And it was that little. And that's not that big a deal. Right. But if you're aware of it, then you go, oh, when do I do that? I always do that the night before I have something important. Yep. The, night, the day you don't have something important, you're like, oh, I'm in at 930. I go to bed. I do this. So it's then you become aware of it. And then you just have to. That's the hard part is there's no, even within the book, there's no true solution the awareness is most of the solution. It's yep. becoming aware of your self-sabotage patterns and recognizing them before or as they arise rather than after and then being able to stop before you do the stupid thing. For sure. And he really walks down that path of like the right questions to ask to test yourself if you really want to follow through with it. Because a lot of times you're like, oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. And you just do it. Yeah. But instead of looking at the the thing and saying like, oh, I am going to do this. And then how is it going to make me feel is it moving me further or close or further or farther away from the next further. goal? Further. Further? Farther. Further relates to degree. Further relates to distance. There you go. And it will ruin your life to know that. Yes. <laughs> because even in fucking Hollywood movies with good screen, some of them with even good screenwriters, they mess up further and further and it drives me nuts. Yeah. Further, you don't say, how far away are you? <laughs> you say, how far away are you? Right. Further is degree. Farther. Further is distance. So you learn something every day here with Mr. Ian Stanley. Grammatical <laughs> genius. Uh, and yeah, I mean, now you made me lose my train of thought. Thank you. Good. Well, we're moving further away from what you were talking about. <laughs> he said that you end up, uh, is this taking me further away right. from my goal or closer? Exactly. So you start going down that and you have these series of questions that really test, like, am I going to self-sabotage or not? Brings you back into the conscious that allows you to actually make that right. conscious decision versus the subconscious of like, nah, it's fine. Right. I, I did. Did you drive the ball further than Gay Hendricks? Yes. How old is he? Uh, I don't know. I want to say he's in in his seventies or eighties. Yeah. But so consistent, and he's and he'll crack it. That's that's the opposite of me. In the fairway, like every time goes up there, he just knows. Boom, and he's up there like putting for par. Like, of course, that's the ultimate like self sabotage guide. Of course, I'd be out there playing golf and be like, "Wow, you just drove at three thirty. And then the next hole, he'd be like, "Wow, that's in the the water on two holes away." Yeah. And be like, what's that about? And be like, well, I was feeling really good, so I decided to fuck it up. The <laughs> <Yeah. next one." laughs> well, I know. That, well, the first three or four holes, I was playing really good. I was like, even after four holes. And then I just, yeah, I fucking shanked one out of bounds. He's like, the old upper limit problem happens in golf like every hole. And I was like, you're so right. So, you're so wise. Yeah, golf and is playing just a golf constant with, exploration of your upper limits. Oh, my God. It's insane. And it is because, um, you know, Tiger Woods talks about it. There's an amazing podcast um, where they take. Talk per- about upper limit. Yeah. Personal- that guy crushing life. Crushing then, ass. 
<laughs> I mean, just he's like, yo, I'm on top of everything. Check out my hot wife and all this. He's like, I'm about to fuck everybody. Yeah. That's what happened. That's it's the Bill Clinton syndrome that he talks about. It's like the people who are at the top make the biggest mistakes because partially they either want to get caught or they're so uncomfortable with their success that they're like They need to fuck it I'm up. I'm gonna and they have to fuck it up in proportion to how they've succeeded. Yeah. It and usually it is like pretty even. Yeah, you know, I mean, you had see Monica Lewinsky just swallowed, he would have been fine. <laughs> Oh my god! That was the problem. Uh, yeah, I know. See, it was they just almost, they almost got it. They almost got it right. He could have been fine if she had just finished the job. <laughs> She's a quitter. That's. I have a bit about that. I talk. <laughs> I about, bet yeah. you do. Yeah, I bet you do. Well, uh, I hope uh, you guys got a lot out of this podcast. Yeah. I'm sure I did. Lots of laughs and really just understanding. There's all these patterns in life, and when you can be aware of them. And you can make those two millimeter shifts. A lot of times that's the difference between winning and being a fucking loser. Yeah. Don't be a fucking loser. <laughs> that's that's the main message here. Losers, you know, nobody likes them. Well, Ian, brother, so good to see you. Very um, fun. Pumped on your new comedy. Guys, go follow him. Is it the real Ian Stanley or uh, is it that? Becoming Ian Stanley. Becoming Ian Stanley. Yeah. I'm a terrible friend. I don't even know your Instagram handle. It's a weird handle. I've thought yeah. about changing it, but then I'm like, it's really, it's to to finish on that thought of what we're talking about is there's nothing scarier than just being completely yourself. And I think that's what being a person is, is just trying to let go of all the stuff that we think we are and just being the thing that we actually are. And so that was kind of where that stemmed from was this yep. idea of becoming Ian Stanley. And that's what we're all trying to do is just be ourselves. And it's crazy how hard that is for so many people and, and myself included at times. Um, so becoming Ian Stanley on Instagram, on TikTok, it's Ian Stanley Comedian. Uh, and then uh, my book is persuasionhitman.com. I didn't even say the name of it that I told about. Confessions of a Persuasion Because you're not Man. allowed to self-promote on this podcast. Whoops. <laughs> my bad. Uh, so that's uh, yeah, we'll drop persuasionhitman.com. Uh, you can also go to feedthewolf.com to opt in. You can go to 90dtf.com. I'm going to give you fucking everything. You want to deal with your money blocks? Moneydnaquiz.com. Uh, what else we're gonna put we're gonna put all those links below this with an affiliate so that he pays us a bunch yeah, of money for go. all the traffic we send him. I love so it. <laughs> sweet, uh, cool man. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, hope you got a lot of laughs. Hope you got a lot of takeaway from this. I know I did, and uh, we'll definitely do more in the future because we have some other stories that I want to dive deeper on. That was just awesome. the iceberg of the becoming Ian Stanley story. I love it. This is fun, man. Yeah, it was Thanks great for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we did it. All, cool, right. All right, we'll see you next time. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was good. Yeah, brother. That was awesome. I knew it. Like, I wanted it to go in every direction. Good laugh. But also, That's I guess it actually, 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 act